Turn with me to Romans chapter 3. So we're going to be looking at the first eight verses of Romans chapter 3. Romans 3 verses 1 through 8 as we continue our study in the book of Romans. Before we do that, let's go again to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help with it. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your Word, we pray that you would help us, because we are a people, even though we have this great advantage before us, having the very words of a holy God, we will take these words and exchange them for a lie pretty readily. Um, and so, Lord, we pray that you would help us, that your truth would change us, that we would more and more turn to you. And we pray this in your name, amen. So as I've been, as I studied this passage, this idea of the advantage that the Jewish people had through the oracles of God it made me think of my teaching experience. I've been teaching for 12 years. This is my 12th year. It's uh, slowly drawing to a close here. It goes pretty fast in the spring. Uh, and I've had the pleasure to teach hundreds of students at this point now, and a few of them are even in the room with us here, and possibly a couple of future students even as well. Uh, and some of those are my own children and their close friends that I've pretty much just watched grow up in my own house, even. And so when I've had them in the classroom, I've worked hard not to show any sort of bias or partiality toward them, particularly regarding grading them and treating them the same that I do other students in regard to their educational experience. But while there is no partiality or favoritism in my classroom when it comes to my kids and their friends, it doesn't mean that they don't have an advantage. When Kate wants a pencil or a Chromebook charger or something like that, anything really at all, she just walks over to my desk and opens up a drawer and gets whatever she wants. No other student would even dream of walking behind my desk, right? But she just kind of does that. Her friends have done the same. And there's just no, no one thinks anything weird of that. They go into the back room and they get some water out of the fridge. They put things in the fridge they want to keep cold. Any needs that they have, they generally know that I'm going to be there to meet them. While I don't show them favoritism in regards to their standing in my class, they still have to do the same work as any other student does, they do have an advantage that other students don't have. In our text today, in Romans 3, we have that same kind of picture where the Jews weren't given any special privilege when it came to their standing before God. There were some definite advantages to being a Jew rather than a Gentile during the time of the Old Testament and even during the time of Christ and His ministry on earth. As we've seen over and over in our studies of the Old and New Testament, adherence to the law doesn't save anyone. If the Bible is clear on anything, it's definitely clear on that. But the fact that Israel was God's chosen people definitely put them in a place of power and prestige that they otherwise could not have even dreamed of. And what they did with those things is one of the many reasons why God judged them so harshly over the years and is the primary message to them from the book of Romans that we're studying today. We have quite an advantage in the church as well as we hold 
to the view that God's people for all time is the church, the true Israel of God, which we see that teaching come out here in this book as well. And Christ died for His people to give them life and to give them life abundantly. And what we do with that life matters. We have the very promises of God for us, and yet many times we struggle to show that we have those things. As we study this text, we'll see that truth, and even while the people of God aren't always faithful, He remains ever faithful. Because of this truth, that is the hope that we have today. As we consider the passage, I want to look at it in three main ideas. God's blessing is an advantage God's promises are true, and then lastly, God's judgment is just. And so with that, let's look together at the text, Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Romans 3, 1 through 8. Then what advantage has the Jew? Of what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in human in a human way. By no means. For then how would, how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Amen. This is God's Word. You may be seated. So for a bit of review of what we looked at last week, we finished chapter 2, which culminated with the idea that just because you're a Jew doesn't mean you have any kind of special privilege. You still re- you're still required to have the righteousness of God in order to be saved. And that righteousness, of course, is only found in Christ. And so as we begin this look at ver- these eight verses today, verse 229 kind of serves as our springboard so to speak. And so let's look at 2.29. We're going to read it again in just a minute, but let's look at it now. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Same idea is going back to, is going to come back later in the book when we get into chapters 9 through 11 in particular, which deal directly with the Jewish people and the understanding of this new covenant in Christ. This concept of Jewish that they were chasing was not just a national or ethnic issue, right? Nor a physical issue regarding circumcision. But it's a heart issue, is what God is trying to tell us. Remember we read last week from Jeremiah chapter 4, the first four verses of that chapter, which states that God desires a circumcision of the heart, that we will repent and believe in the one whom the Father has sent, namely Jesus Christ. All of that said, the nation of Israel definitely has a special privilege of God. You can't get away from it. Any plain reading of the Old Testament shows this. There's no reason to try to cover it up, cover it up, even for the most ardent covenant theologian. It's very plain. 
this nation had a special privilege. They were, God had a particular people for a particular time and place, and that people had power and riches that made no sense for a nation of its size and geographic position. But those advantages weren't enough. We're going to see that in our text today. We aren't national Israel here today, obviously. And national Israel today is not a separate people of God that he has someplace else. But there is something here for us today in the 21st century church here in America. And it's the same message that Paul wrote 2,000 years ago to the people then. What we do with this blessing of God matters. And that brings us to the first point, God's blessing is an advantage. And so I want to read chapter or verse 1 again, but I want to read 29 with it so that you kind of see how they're paired together. And so let's look at 229 again and then right into verse 1 of chapter 3. But a Jew is one inwardly. Circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Which is a natural question, right? Especially if you read the Old Testament and even read the Gospels, you're kind of expecting there to be this kind of great thing that's going to happen maybe for the Jewish people or to the Jewish people then. The promise of the Gospel is going to end. It ends up being for the whole world, but it's going to come through this particular people, the Jewish people. The Jewish people knew this already, right? It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, the promise that was given to their patriarch Abraham that through him the families of the earth would be blessed. They knew that all this was true. These were, these were their sacred scriptures. Yet Jesus was a Jew. The disciples were Jewish. The Spirit came down at Pentecost among the Jewish people. And so while the change that God desires is a heart change, there has to be some advantage to being a Jewish person, right? The whole Bible is about them. And that's the question that is asked in verse 1, which he gives a quick answer for in verse 2. Let's look at verse 2. What is the value of being a Jew? What is the value of circumcision? Verse 2, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. The Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, or literally the words of God. For whatever reason, the Lord saw fit in the space of a few thousand years to hand down His word through many different Jewish men, through years of plenty, through years of want, through years of power and wealth, and through years of poverty and exile, the Lord handed down His word. Through all of that, God's Word has been preserved and written down for the people of God for all time. And now that people of God has extended to the Gentiles, particularly through the ministry of Paul the Apostle. There are a few significant things here. Namely, this solidifies, of course, the idea that the Old Testament is counted among God's Word to His people today, to His people in the New Testament then that Paul was writing to, to His people today The Jewish people have always believed this, of course, but it is now extended to the apostles in their ministry to the New Testament church. It may seem like a small thing, but only because we have the benefit of history and time on our sides. That's it. 
And even in the church today, not everyone sees the Old Testament as having a particular advantage for the church today. So Paul explains it to us, Gentile folk, that it is indeed a great advantage here, especially to the Jewish people. Having the words of God with them at all times as a guide, as a reference, the very words of life given to them, which ultimately points forward to the coming Messiah, this one who would come and bring redemption and salvation to all. And so then the natural question should be, if their word, this word that they had is about this coming Messiah, and then he he comes, if these oracles of God were pointed to Jesus, and the Jewish people had some kind of advantage by being receivers of these words, then why did they not receive Jesus? It makes sense. It's a good question. Why did they crucify Him rather than receive Him as their coming King and usher in a new time of peace and prosperity as a, as a Jewish nation? This Son of David has come finally to sit on the throne of God and they, and they crucify Him. Of course, we know it wasn't God's plan and Jesus is coming to do that, but it does cause you to wonder. And the Apostle addresses that in his next point. But I want us to consider, I want us to consider these blessings that we have in Christ's church today. Because we have these exact same words to us. Even more, we have this book written to the Roman church, right? Right here in front of us. For all time. We have all the other New Testament books that point us directly to our Savior, that tell us about His life and His ministry on earth, as well as plain and easy words in a language that we can all understand about how we can be saved and how we ought to live in this life and how we ought to await the life to come. All these things are very plain and easy for us to read in His Word. As we consider the world around us, even our own internal difficulties, we don't even have to go outside of our nose to find a whole lot of difficulty in this life, as we live and we work and we do normal life. Remember, we have no greater blessing than the blessing of God's Word here for us, which puts us, His people, at a distinct advantage. These are the promises of life for us. They provide rest for the weary soul, as well as the plain truth for the world around us as we minister to it. And that brings us to the next point. God's promises are true. The Jewish people proved themselves to be unfaithful, even with all of God's provision. We know that. Even with His provision of the Word, they were not faithful. So what does this say about God? He addresses this in verses 3-4. through Let's look at those. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, though you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. The apostle swiftly deals with this issue as he does normally. He, he wastes no time making sure that we understand that there is no way that the failing here is God's failing. In fact, if everyone proved to be unfaithful, everyone proved the unfaithful, which is that's exactly the truth that we're dealing with, then God would true, still prove faithful. We see in verse 4, let, ev- let God be true, though everyone else were a liar. 
Then he quotes from Psalm 51. Remember, we read Psalm 51 to open our service last week. We referred to it in the in the sermon as well, which concerns David and his sin, his particular sin with Bathsheba, his adultery and murder of his of her uh, husband. But David wasn't an adulterer long before Bathsheba. We've been studying. We just finished studying David's life, actually. And that particular sin caused him to write the words of Psalm 51, of which verse 4 says this. This is David speaking to the Lord in Psalm 51.4. He says, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Which is exactly what Paul quotes here. David is right to affirm that God is 100% justified in his judgments of man, though man shows himself over and over again to be faithless, God remains faithful. Man's actions are independent of God's goodness to man over and over. The actions of God's people do not show the character of God of the God that they worship. He is not guilty by association, as it were. Rather, he is the, he only ever shows himself to be the opposite of that. When you consider the saints of old, all the advantages that they had, they had every reason to be faithful to God. But they weren't. David's just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to men and women in the Bible who looked at God's faithfulness and did the opposite of what you'd expect them to do. They took his goodness and his faithfulness and they threw it back at him. One of the most common jabs that is thrown at the church today is the idea that the God we worship must be bad because Christians are so bad. The world commits the same fallacy as the rhetorical objector here that Paul writes about in Romans 3. God must be guilty by association since we have all these advantages yet we can't seem to get anything right. The church is full of hypocrites, is what they say, and so then they reject the God of the church because of it. We've all heard it, every one of us. This kind of goes back to 2.24. Look at 2.24 real quick. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. But it still doesn't give an excuse for that behavior that the world exhibits. And if anyone should be accused, it's not God, but it's believers like you and I who have all the blessings and yet still, for some reason, we can't get it right. Even more than the Jews. Definitely more. We have the full revelation of God, the full oracle of God. We know the redemptive story in full. We have received Christ. We know Him. God's redemptive plan laid out plain in Christ Jesus for all to see. We know that we have been, as Paul said to the Ephesians, that we have been created for good works, that we would walk in them. So the question to you, church, is why aren't we walking in them? Do we presume upon the kindness of God? Because God cannot deny Himself. We know this to be true. Because he must do this according to his very nature. He must remain faithful. So then do we take that for granted? 
I think in the Reformed tradition, more than most, we have this particular problem because we put such a great emphasis on the sovereignty of God, which we should. It is definitely a character that are definitely a characteristic that the God has, but in this emphasis, many times we take it a step too far and then negate the responsibility of man to walk in a manner worthy of his calling. A lot of times you'll hear the word hyper-Calvinism associated with this idea. It's the wrong belief that, among other things, emphasizes the sovereignty of God to the point that it attempts to negate the responsibility of man to walk in the good works that we have been called to walk in. Because God's plan is so sure, and the assurance of their own salvation equally sure, they then live like heathens. Because it doesn't matter how you live. Their world is all about the end game rather than about the fact that they are sinning against the holy God whom they claim to love who will be justified in his words and who will prevail when he judges. Now we have to be careful because it's really easy to swing the other way too and never stop worrying about the fact of whether or not you're going to be saved. It's like the believer who prays every day that they hope they've done enough to earn God's favor. They're the same sin. Neither one of them trust in the provision of Christ. Both of these extremes are wrong. We must rest in Christ alone and His righteousness for salvation. And we must live holy lives showing our calling and election to be sure. What other way will we show the advantage that we have? Think about that for a moment. My kids, both of my children who have had my class, who have had my class, one of my children has had two of my classes, and they've, they do great in them, right? Not because they had it easy, they're neither one of the classes are easy classes. It's not because I showed them any particular partiality, I gave them the exact same help that I did, would any other student. They worked hard. They deserve the grade that they got. But if you ask them, if you ask them about why they wanted to work hard or even harder in my class than they might have worked in another class, they probably felt a little bit of an extra push to do well because it was my class and not just somebody else's class. Why do we treat God any differently? We have this great blessing in our salvation We have the truth of God. We have the very righteousness of Christ which sets us right before a holy God. The challenge to you, church, is to go then and live a holy life so that the name of Jesus Christ might be glorified so that the world would hear that name and call upon it and be saved. To be sure, God is right to judge and He is right to discipline when we don't live as we ought to live. And that brings us to the final point, that God, His judgment is just. What follows here is an argument that Paul raises from another rhetorical objector. He does this all throughout the book of Romans. And this this made-up argument that he makes is not sound at all, to the point where even there's this kind of parenthetical kind of statement where he's like, I speak in a human way, which is to say, Please, please forgive me for this argument that I'm setting up, right? Because it's just so absurd. And that's what we're going to look at through in verses 5 
through 8. But if our, right, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could we show, or how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Essentially what's being said here is if if discipline, if judgment is so good, then we should act wrongly so that God's goodness would shine all the more. Right? Notice his answer. By no means. By no means. This is what we should be doing. We deal with this later a bit in chapter 6 and 7 as well. He ends verse 8 by saying this about that person and anyone else who would act against the words of God, their condemnation is just. And I say this to the unbeliever here today. Make sure you understand what the implications are here. And I want to be clear about this. Whatever you might think about God because of the way that you see Christians act, right? When you, when you see Christians or when you read about Christians or you look, you read media accounts of the way they think Christians act, and then you think a certain thing about God because of that, because of the words Christians say or whatever it is, All of those things are completely inconsequential. Every one of them. Well, I can't worship a God who has followers like that. That's fine if that's your stance. But understand, that argument will not work when you stand before that holy God. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. When it comes to your life, He will be justified in His condemnation of you. Rather than face judgment on your own, be judged according to the perfect righteousness of Christ. To do that, one must simply call upon His name. Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved today. For believers here today, this should call us back to verse 4 of chapter 2, and I want to look at that together. Let's look at that together. Because I think this passage really brings that verse forward quite a bit. Or do you presume upon the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? The question for us as a church is why do we act in such a way to presume upon the kindness of God? As silly as the arguments in Verses 5 through 8 of chapter 3 sounds the same one that we make every time we sin against Him. We presume upon His kindness, forgetting that His kindness is not there to push us away, to cause us to act in an unholy manner. Rather, it is there to draw us back to Him. His kindness and His patience with us is there to lead us to repentance, not to lead us to unholy living. In Jesus Christ, we have every single advantage that we could ever even imagine. The very King of kings has given His life to secure our eternal salvation. He even says directly to us, I am preparing a place 
for you. I am interceding on your behalf at the right hand of the Father. These are words that He has said directly to us. Can you imagine the King of kings, the very Son of God, second person of the Trinity, doing these things for people like us? The world around us needs a Savior, but we don't because we have one. And in Him we have every spiritual blessing that we could possibly ever imagine. As Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians, we have these treasures, these incredible treasures that are immeasurable, hidden in jars of clay, in nothing. Why would He even do that? To show His surpassing greatness. To show who He is. Well, then how will we respond to that then? Will we just live any way we choose? Or will we live how He chooses? Christian, do not consider the kindness of God as an opportunity to live a life apart from His law. We have every possible advantage on this earth because of what we have in Christ. So then show yourself to be one of His people how by how you live by how you love Him, and by how you love others. Let's go to Him in prayer.